Welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review. Our several-year mission will be to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. We will be reviewing every Star Trek comic book ever published. These stories have been released by Gold Key, Marvel, DC, Malibu, Wildstorm, Tokyo Press, IDW, and others. Star Trek and all that the Star Trek universe contains is copyrighted by CBS Studios, Inc. Hello and welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review with Donovan and Ken. Episode number 195, recorded February 21st, 2015. Today we're finishing up the Q Gambit. Yes. IDW's six-issue long story with the fifth and the sixth installment today. Cool. Yeah, so it is quite a long story arc, but boy, there was a lot of people from the DS9-ville for us to meet and see what happened to them in this altered future. Right. So one of the things that I always find funny is that you're talking about alternate future, you know, the mirror dimension, whatever, and yet everybody who's friends or knows each other in one dimension are also friends and knows each other in the other dimension. And this story makes that even less plausible because now we're talking about completely different timelines, not just necessarily a slightly different future. Oh, yeah. And Um, and not only that, correct me if I'm wrong, but they've never been together on Deep Space Nine. Right. Right. So it isn't like they were all together on the station and Cisco was commander. No, no. It was always in the hands of, I guess, the Cardassians and then the Dominion. So... Right. So, in both universes, everybody's mom and everybody's dad still fell in love right at the same time, so that <laughs> they all got born roughly around the same age, and they were all the exact same people at the exact same time in, in both universes, or both timelines. Yes. yes, you're right. That's the part that I call BSO. Especially when you have an Earth that's been occupied by the Klingons, you would think that, uh, you know, there may not be a, you know, Cisco or... O'Brien or whatever, because the parents' lives would have been completely different than well, what, what they had in the normal timeline. Right. So, Earth was taken over by the Klingons when Cisco was still a kid, right? Or at least a young man. I thought he. I thought it was even before Cisco was born. Oh, okay. Well, okay. Well, well, at least that. Maybe it's even further behind. Right. So the Federation went on without Earth then. Because where did Defiant come from? I mean, it says USS Defiant on it. It's a product of Starfleet, I guess. Um, (laughs) So it was actually built later in time when Cisco was a commander, a a captain, whatever, in the next-gen time frame. But Earth was taken over in that entire time period. When was it constructed? And who constructed it? Right. Exactly. No, No idea. At least in the uh, next gener, or I'm sorry, the uh, Deep Space Nine Mirror Universe episodes, you know, where the same similar situation where the Cardassians and the Klingons had taken over Earth and there was no Federation. Right. Um, they at least acknowledge that version of Miles got the blueprints from the for the Defiant from yeah. our universe yeah. or the Prime, the Prime Universe, universe. And, right. and brought it over and created it that way. Why he still stenciled it USS Defiant. With the same registry and everything, I don't know, but that's <laughs> splitting hairs. Exactly. But at least they kind of explained why they had a Defiant uh, right. in that universe. But but yeah, here, never explained. 
And, you know, maybe that's okay. Because if they would have had a story, a Deep Space Nine story, even an alternate future Deep Space Nine story without the Defiant, I'm sorry. I would not be happy. <laughs> so I think they made the right decision. It's just it doesn't really hold up very well if you think about it too much. Right. So just don't think about it too much. Exactly. Take Austin Powers' advice. Or was it at his boss? Well, whatever. <laughs> and which one was that? It was in the second one where he travels back to the 70s or 60s or whatever. And he says, don't think about it too much? Well, yeah, so that's when they've got the Volkswagen Beetle that is the time-traveling car. So channeling a little bit of Back to the Future. And him and Michael York, his boss, are talking about the time-travel thing. And then it immediately becomes obvious the paradoxes of time-travel. And then they both just look into the camera. You don't remember this? They, they look into the camera and, uh, and basically say, you know, if we were you, we'd just not think too much about this and enjoy the ride. <laughs> well, was that the third one? Where um... I think it's the second one. It's not gold. Oh, okay. It's not the Goldfinger one. It's not the gold member one. Gold member one. God, that's rather disgusting. That third one was not good. The no. second one was the best. The first one was pretty good. second one was clearly the best. In my opinion. Right. But this is not the Austin Powers podcast. Not yet. Oh, there's a thought. No, no. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, you want to jump into issue 39? Let's do that. Okay. So, ongoing number 39, part five. Writer Mike Johnson, story consultant Roberto Orsi, art Tony Shastine, colors David Mastrolonardo. Letterer Neil Yataki, editor Sarah Gatos, and I forgot to mention, but it is a published date November 2014. The primary cover features Cisco and Kirk standing defiantly as a big blue colored Q head looks on position behind them. A star field makes up the background. The second cover is a stock shot of Deep Space Nine with the wormhole open and ships coming through in the background. Captain Keiko O'Brien and her chief engineer and husband Miles are on the bridge as the Defiant is approaching the Resistance outpost named Paradise. There is no response to their hails, which is very worrying. They enter the atmosphere and see the devastation of their base, smoke and fire rising up from the buildings and several shuttlecraft. Sisko states with dismay, the Dominion found us. He, Odo, Captain Kirk, and Uhura transport down to the ruins. Kirk warns the perpetrators could be still here in the area. They should stay alert. Odo, checking his tricorder, states no other ships are showing up in his scans. He conjectures they have already moved on to their other outposts. Sisko asks Odo to alert the smaller outposts and says there were families here. Sisko hears a familiar voice say, Dad! It's Jake, who's followed closely behind by Jazia Dax. They are armed and dressed mostly in black clothes. Father and son embrace. Jake and Dax tell them about the Dominion attack. They were able to escape into the forest with some other survivors and stay out of the invaders' clutches until they left the planet. Jake recognizes Kirk and asks how he could possibly be here. Kirk does not take the time to explain, but does say how the Entity Q brought them forward in time to face a no-win scenario. 
this is looking more and more like that no-win scenario to Kirk. Dax mentions Kira and the tablet. Cisco says the tablet may be their final shot at turning this no-win scenario around. Its recovery must be their top priority. Meanwhile, on Turok Noor, Dukat is reveling in his newfound power since the released Power Wraith came to him as a natural host. He shouts how Turok Noor, the Dominion, Cardassia as well, are words that are losing their meaning to him. The supposed last of the prophets was also released and sees in Kira a willing host and moves toward her. Dukat blasts Kira before the prophet can merge with its new host. McCoy rushes to her side and quickly determines she's dead, Dukat. McCoy tells Dukat to kill them too right now if that's their eventual fate. Dukat tells the doctor that their fate has not been decided yet. He'd like to keep he and Spock on as his personal guests at Turak Noor. Meanwhile at Paradise, Kirk walks off into the ruins alone and calls for Q. Q eventually appears and tells Kirk he doesn't need to shout. Kirk says the game must end. People are dying. Q says to stop whining. The game, as he puts it, has rules and must be played out to the end. Q advises Kirk to check on his new friend. Kirk rushes back and sees Sisko on his knees with a halo of white-blue light all around him. The prophet has taken him as the most suitable host. As the combined Benjamin Sisko slash prophet entity, he looks on them with white glowing eyes. He tells them the tablet has been destroyed. Kieran Arise was killed by Dukat, who now has the power of the Power Wraith. Kirk's comrades, the Vulcan and Doctor, are still alive, along with the rest of his crew, who are being held at Turak Noor. Meanwhile, on the bridge of the Enterprise, Dukat, complete with red glowing eyes, is comfortably seated at the con. He gives orders to set course for the wormhole. The ever-watchful Vorta asks what Dukat is doing. Dukat tells him he is entering the wormhole, where he will continue his transformation into something new, something powerful. He says the Dominion is no longer a concern to him, and kills the Vorta with red lightning from his fingertips. He asks the combined Cardassian and Jem'Hadar crew if anyone else has any objections. They voice none. That settled, the ship continues on towards the wormhole. In Turak Noor, Chekhov, Sulu, and a sassy, short-haired female crewwoman escape from their cells and stealthily make their way through the station. They finally come upon two Jem'Hadar guards that are escorting Spock and McCoy to their cells. Spock takes advantage of the distraction caused by the escaped prisoners to overcome their two guards. The reunited crewmen quickly determine the Enterprise has left the station. Furthermore, since Kirk is unlikely to be on the ship, Spock conjectures Dukat is in command. Meanwhile in space, the Defiant arrives at Turok Noor in time to see the Enterprise moving towards the wormhole. Dukat hails the Defiant. Dukat, with his creepy power wraith eyes, tells Sisko slash Prophet, Hello! Sisko says he knows what Dukat is, and he will be stopped. Dukat baits Sisko on by asking Sisko how he will stop him when he is now going where Sisko dares not go. The Enterprise enters the wormhole. Kirk is gung-ho about going after Dukat, but Sisko says no. It would be sure death. Sisko explains the Power Wraith took over the dimension in the wormhole 
and in the process expelled and destroyed his kind. Dukat and the power wraith inside him are going to join the other power wraiths. Kirk chides Sisko for letting them go and waiting until Dukat returns with more of his power wraith brethren to wipe them all out. Chekhov manages to contact the Defiant and asks the captain to beam them out. They are pinned down by Jem'Hadar weapons fire and they are closing in. Kirk tells him to hold on. He tells Sisko they will rescue them first, then go into the wormhole to get his ship back. A now familiar voice tells Kirk that Sisko is right. If you chase Dukat, you won't come back out alive. But if you wait too long, it's only a matter of time before he comes back to destroy you all. Kirk asks Q if this is the no-win scenario he promised to show him. Q says it is, but not only must you see it, but you have an important decision to make about it. And this decision is of the gravest importance. Depending upon Kirk's decision, it could mean the end of himself and the entire Q continuum. To be continued. Those are some big stakes there. Oh, the biggest. Somehow, somehow the Q continuum itself is threatened? The omniscient, the omnipotent, the the all-doing-whatever-they-want Q continuum? How could that be? Hmm, we'll find out. Those power race must be pretty doggone powerful if they can threaten the Q continuum. Right. So I do have a question about this war, and man, maybe I sh- should I save it till the next issue, or can we go ahead and talk about it now? I'll talk about it now. What the heck? So, so are the Paul Wraiths multi-dimensional as well? Can they? Are, is there only one Paul Wraith for every dimension? Because there seems to be only one. This version of Q, he can go to any dimension. He covers them all. So, are the prophets and the Paw race the same way? Because I always kind of thought that they were set in that timeline. As far as the TV show was concerned, I always had the impression there were multiple Paw Wraiths, there were multiple prophets, and there was some kind of conflict going on inside the wormhole or whatever, uh, wherever they lived. I never knew they were multidimensional. If they mention that in the show, I don't remember it. This is different in the fact that now there's only supposedly the last of the prophets, and there's still a whole bunch of uh, power wraiths. Now, the fact that whether they're multidimensional, I mean, they say they're multidimensional in the the comic. Uh So multidimensional doesn't necessarily mean time jumping, but you, you can jump between different physical dimensions. Right. I think. Right. So... So is this 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 one last prophet? Is he the only Supposedly. prophet that exists in all all dimensions? Because uh, of the, because of I, the I, war. I I don't know, Donovan. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's an interesting question, but I don't know. I mean, the the whole idea of having omniscient beings that can jump around between time and dimensions and whatever just opens up a huge can of worms. And quite frankly, I never thought of the Power Wraiths and the Prophets in Deep Space Nine in the same, as being the same kind of beings or even the same class of beings as Q. I never did either, but they do both have the crazy ability to to jump through time. I mean, the, uh, you know, the the orbs and stuff were all from from the Prophets, so they could 
and the and through the well, wars, people would travel through time, or it would change well, something, almost like a, a Q type thing. Well, I, okay, I don't remember them being able to jump between time. I think they're very long lived, and I thought that they had distributed some of these orbs, you know, across the past, just because they're very long lived. I didn't realize they could jump time, but I well, mean, there's a lot if- of details about these guys. You know, the the power rates and the profits, you don't know. I mean, I I don't think they ever said in the Deep Space Nine series, but... Right, and there was a few episodes where the profits were causing Benjamin to jump to alternate dimensions where he was just a writer in the 60s or whatever, and he was, you know, and everybody on the show was just fellow writers and they were and they were writing a fictional story about a space station kind of thing. Right. So, I mean, it... There is that is kind of set up in the show that they could be some cross you know that they, they did they do have powers more that more in line with Q than I ever give them credit for. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, I, I I never some some places they went with you know that kind of stuff and especially that episode which I was not crazy about that episode, but um, it was several I, episodes. They they brought that back a couple of times. Okay, but I don't remember it being very well explained. Yeah, I guess they do have some pretty awesome powers. And, I mean, if you really think about it, you come to find out that, uh, you know, Benjamin himself was conceived by a... Prophet. Prophet, so... A prophet in human form, somehow. Yeah. Now, how did that work? Did the prophet take over that woman's body? She didn't have glowy eyes. Um... (laughs) They never had the glowy eyes in the show. No. They just talked really stiff. Nah. <laughs> well, a lot of times they just appeared to Cisco, right? Right. I mean, right. they didn't necessarily have a physical form. They just appeared to him, right? Yeah, that was just how they presented themselves. But apparently they got into a physical form somehow, or Cisco wouldn't have been there. <laughs> right. So anyways, uh, just reading this book and reading these, these last two issues, it really got me thinking more of what the Paul race and the prophets could have been capable of that I never really thought about too terribly much during the show right but then i kept getting caught up on if this really is a war that's crossing all dimensions then is this really the last prophet for all dimensions or is he just the last prophet for this particular dimension i don't know but he was the last prophet in this story because it was convenient right right (laughs) (laughs) how are they going to be stopped good lord only one good ultra amazing prophet against all those power rates how will it how will this be resolved we'll find out yes we will so now Kira's dead so they kill off Worf and they kill off Kira so who's next who else are they going to just kill off at random huh I don't know but the the Kira one was pretty that was a surprise to me I really thought she was going to be the vessel for the the big fight between the Paw Wraith and the Prophet I wasn't expecting her to just get blown away yeah when you think about it, why not? I mean, Ducat's there. He's bloodthirsty. I mean, he's got a he's got a, a Cardassian pistol. I mean, like, why not? I thought that made sense, and it did have shock value. Although right. not as shock value as Worf. It's like, oh my gosh. Right, right. Yeah, at least this kind of mirrored the uh, the way Ducat got taken over by the Paw Wraith and then killed um, Jedzia uh, decks. Yeah, right. We didn't see Jed Zia very long, did we? Nope. 
I would have liked it if Jadzia and Ezra would have both been there. I mean, if you're going to have everybody there just for FaceTime, right. why not Why not have them both there? But have one as Dax and one as whatever she was before she got the symbiote. Right. Yeah, could have. It just it would have little, made, it made gets, just as much sense. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but Jadzia was on the show a lot longer. Sure. So they went with the core team. Right. No, I get it. I thought it was interesting how the Defiance transporter effect is made up of horizontal swirls around people, which is more in alignment with the reboot Taz movies, mm-hmm. as opposed to the, like the more the vertical shimmering particles, you know, coming downward, which right. is what tended to happen in Deep Space Nine and 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 uh, Next Gen. Right, because this is this is the future of the Taz, the new movies, not the exactly future, not the the normal DS9. Company. Right, and, and I get that. It's just that I'm not used <laughs> to seeing that effect around Deep Space Nine people. Right. It was a no. little jarring when I was seeing that. Going, oh, I guess it makes sense. So right. transporter technology was developed a little differently after Nero comes back. Sure. It's just one of those things that that was a little different. Right. But it is funny that they chose to stick with that version of the teleportation effect, and yet they didn't stick with the the new motion pictures version of the Klingons in, in the last couple issues. Oh. So they're really picking and choosing which continuity they want to use. visualize. Right. Yeah. Yeah, well, good point about the Klingons. So what is this paradise? Is that from the show that I'm just not... I don't remember it from the show. Could have been. I just don't remember it. All right. Yeah, because when he said last issue, we're going to paradise, I thought, oh, cool, we'll get to see what Ryza looks like in in this alternate Ah. Because I was thinking that that was kind of a... And I I still, even even going through here, I was kind of thinking, well, it's all burnt down and it's it's destroyed, which Ryza probably would be. I mean, you wouldn't have a lot of need for a resort world like that when when you're being occupied by aliens. Yeah, but the aliens might like resort worlds. There's always a market for resort worlds. True. And Romulan Ale. <laughs> right. I guess we haven't really saw anything that, that talked about how rare Romulan Ale be in, <laughs> in the post-Nemesis world. <laughs> well, yeah, didn't they say something about that? I mean, they actually mentioned Romulan Ale. Yeah, I'm trying and, to think. And, and, and oh, that's here. right. That's right. It was this one. Yeah, uh, Ducat said it. No, wait a minute. That wouldn't have been right. Oh, that's, cause, that's right, because in this continuity, Romulus was destroyed again by the by the dark matter, the red matter. They destroyed themselves yeah, they, with the red matter. Right. The um, Yeah, that's right. The founders did that. Right, right, right. With right. their shape-shifting powers. Okay. All right, so I'm rehashing a joke they already did. They did bring it up. So at this point in this issue, all of Kirk's crew is back on Torak Nor. Is that right? It seems like it. Right. They said that. Yep. Now, weren't they also like on Bajor for a while? I mean, isn't that where they met Bashir? Right. At least some of them, McCoy, Spock, and some of the other, some other members of the crew. Yeah, but I think once Court turned them in, they brought them all back up to the ship. Right, because it was just uh, it was just uh, Spock and McCoy, right? Oh, I, I it was definitely Spock and McCoy, but I thought there were some others also, and I thought they were supposed to be used for forced labor. 
So I'm just saying, if you got that many people in forced labor, but for some reason you got this fixation on Spock and McCoy, okay, fine, bring Spock and McCoy back and leave the rest of the the crew that you've already got on the uh, planet, use them as forced labor. So it just seems very convenient that now, oh, let's forget about that, and everybody's back on the space station. Right. Well, I mean... Back during the occupation, that's where the the forced labor was back then too, right? They would beam the ore up, and people yep. would mine it there on the station. Well, Although they it never would shows them, it. Yeah. they mine it on the planet, they process it on the station. Right, right, right. But it never shows these guys doing anything. I think, in, in fact, I think this might be the first time we see Sulu and them since since the beginning, right? Right. So was it the blue shirts that were taken for forced labor? I don't know. I think it might have. I don't. It might have just been. Well, there was that one shot where they're all in the hangar bay, right? And all the doctors are, are the science officers. Yeah. Yeah, I don't remember. No. Anyway, whatever. It's not the main point. We so never see them. They're anymore. just moving on. Yeah. They're just moving on. The crew's background material, anyway. As is often the case in these stories. Right. So what do you think about the artwork? This issue, especially when they're like doing the landscapes and stuff, the the faded backgrounds really kind of stood out to me. Yeah. Like when they're on Paradise and stuff, the, the backgrounds are really just like a blur. Yeah, it's a blur. It's like a watercolor blur. I'm not crazy about that, but whatever. I mean, I think at the very the last cell, the last panel shows uh, a really good drawing of Q. Who right. you know lets lets the other shoe drop about the queue continuing ceasing ceasing to exist. But even then, there's a background of like a an L cars control panel. So there again, it's just very blurry, artsy fartsy, you know, whatever. They do a lot <laughs> of that. Right. So it's fine, whatever. Um, at least generally speaking, they've done they they've they've done a good job of drawing the characters. Realistic looking. I like realistic looking. Right, and the ships tend to look really good, so which is yep. so much better. I'm sorry, than those wild that wildstorm thing they did. Agreed. The the Deep Space Nine Invector one. Yeah, right. That guy. Right. So I like the artwork in general. I do. I think the characters' expressions are really good. Mm-hmm. I think Ducat looks really, really evil with the uh, with the glowing eyes and the. And the smile on his face. Yeah, he's always an evil-looking dude. Yeah, the Cardassian makeup design was was so fantastic. Doing the really necks good. that way, it just yes, the, that was great. And mm-hmm. and even with the spoon on the forehead. Yeah, the spoon on the forehead's like the, the one downside to me, but <laughs> <laughs> but everything else is so great that I, I it, it it doesn't bother me at all. Yeah. <laughs> so. Uh, do you have any other comments about the story, or can we talk about the few pages at the end of this issue? Uh, no, let's go ahead. They give us a nice little taste, a little sampling of uh, Star Trek Planet of the Apes, which I think is pretty cool. Right. I'm pretty sure this is the first few pages of the the actual comic. I haven't read the actual comic, so I don't know yet. So it looks so- good. Looks like oh, a lot of Klingon espionage going on. Right. Okay. So, you know, I don't want to spoil anything for anybody, but <laughs> by the time we are hearing this, the issue would have been out for months or at least a month. So right. uh, I'm sure I'm not spoiling anything. 
but it does look like somehow the Planet of the Apes is somewhere near Klingon territory. And Which it should it, be Earth, so it I, should I, don't be know, Earth. I don't know how that works out. I, I, me neither. But it looks like it's somewhere within the Klingon sphere of influence, whether it's actually in Federation space or not, I don't know. But somebody is arming apes with uh, more advanced weapons. Right, right. I'm Who pretty sure it's going to be a Pa Wraith ah, from, the, from this story. Wraith. No. From this story, he's like, I'm going to teach those damn dirty apes. <laughs> well, okay, you only see the person in shadows. Obviously, this person, whoever he is, and I'm going to assume it's a he because it's shortish hair, or so the silhouette appears, is trying to exercise some kind of power play here, which sounds like just the kind of things Klingons would be doing. Um, right. So this might be a little akin to that Taws episode where you've got the hill people and the valley people who are traditionally okay with each other, but there's, uh, you know, there's, there's war being fermented right. by, uh, by the Klingons giving guns. Uh, this planet does not have guns, as I recall. Anyway, they give them better guns anyway. And then it turns out that that's what the Federation has to do too, to maintain right. a balance of power. So yep. it looks like maybe that's kind of a theme that's going on here. Maybe. I was thinking the same thing. Yeah. But then the last few pages show Sulu and Uhura on Kronos. Yes. In in sneaking in, dressed up as Klingons. So exactly. And how do you like that cutthroat scar that uh, Sulu's sporting? It looks nasty. It looks very nasty. He looks bad. But when you see characters you know and love with just the bushy eyebrows and and the uh, the fake beard. Mm-hmm. Th- that's when I really am not a fan of the smooth-headed Klingons. <laughs> right, because they're definitely walking right past a Klingon guard, and mm-hmm. he's the old-fashioned Taz Klingon. Yep. In fact, at, thir- at first, when I was first looking at them, I mean, I should have recognized you know the look of the buildings more, but I thought they were Romulans at first. And then, see that. then pretty quickly, it's like, oh no, they're Klingons. Okay, fine. So, anyways, we'll definitely need to review this sooner than later because uh, <laughs> I'm a fan of both franchises. Yeah, yeah, me too. So they got a couple interesting things going on here too. So a little bit of uh, Klingon espionage. Usually in Taws, it's the it's the Klingons being sneaky and uh, doing the espionage, but. Uh, Except, of course, for the Enterprise incident. But, but that was, those are Romulans. But <laughs> it's kind of interesting seeing uh, you know, Starfleet doing little espionage themselves. Right, right. All right, cool. Anything else? Nada. All right, well, then I will jump into issue number 40, if you don't mind. Please do. All right, it had a published date of December 2014. Uh, it's just entitled Q Gambit number six. Uh, all the writing and art staff is the same as the previous issue. We'll start off with the photo cover. It is just a headshot of Quark, a photo headshot of Quark. And so we'll, you know, obviously expect to see a lot of Quark in this issue. 
And then the uh, main cover, the art cover, shows uh, Goldicott's face in the background. And in the foreground are some larger-than-life hands, presumably his. And uh, within these hands, we see Kirk, Spock, and a red-shirted Q tumbling out as, as if the Cardassian is playing a game of dice. So the story picks up right after Q has dropped his bombshell that Kirk is now being faced with the no-win scenario, with the whole Q continuum in the balance. Q states that the multidimensional war between the Q, Pawraiths, and other advanced races is in full swing, and the surprise is that the Q continuum is losing the war. He has come to Kirk to seek a three-dimensional solution to his multidimensional problem, and thought of no one better to teach him than James Tiberius Kirk. On the Enterprise, in the wormhole, Goldicott, with the Pawraith still inside of him, requests that the other Paul Wraiths free him of his body and allow him to join them as pure energy. The other Paul Wraiths are surprised he is able to suppress and harness the power of the Paul Wraiths inside of him and not be completely taken over by the much more powerful being. Takat tells them that in exchange for their help, he has brought them a surprise. As if on cue, the Defiant shows up within the wormhole with the last remaining prophet in Sisko's body. Finally, the Paw Wraiths will be able to eliminate the Prophets once and for all. Ducat transports the possessed six Ducat transports the possessed Cisco, Spock, Kirk, and Q over to the Enterprise. There, he shoots Cisco with a phaser. Before Cisco and the Prophet can completely die, the wormhole alien is able to transfer into Spock. Spock, in turn, sees the only logical answer and mind melds with Q and transfer the alien again. Now, with Q and the Prophet's powers combined, everything that the Paw Race can throw at the new Q only give him a little tickle. And with a touch, he reduces Ducat to dust. He now has the power to reshape the war as he sees fit. He thanks Kirk again for defeating a supposed no-win scenario. Kirk states that he did not do it, but Spock. He also says that the reason why he does not believe in no-win scenarios is that he has the best crew in the biz. Q says that that is both touching and true. Then he returns the Enterprise and her complete crew back to the proper time and place. Later, on the Enterprise, again on its five-year mission, Spock states in his log that only he and Kirk recall any of the events in the Deep Space Nine timeline. Later, he and Kurt are discussing the events, and they wonder if it's still possible that that's going to be the future. And Kirk states that they cannot know for sure, and then he invites his first officer to a friendly game of three-dimensional chess. Elsewhere, on the Enterprise-E, Ambassador Picard is about to have a glass of tea when a glowing Q appears. Picard looks at the most powerful being in all the universes and simply says... I don't want to know. The end. Ah, uh-huh. uh, yes. All glowy and stuff. So now we're, we're never going to see Q's pupils again. Right. Yep. No, now he has um, Gary Mitchell glowing eyes. <laughs> yeah, so now he's more powerful than any of the other Qs, right? Or right. he is part of the Q continuum, so... Well, whatever. So the main point is... What will he do with this newfound power? Hmm. Yeah. He was able to completely reshape all of reality as far as how the war was going with, with all these other omnipotent beings. So 
uh, how did they not think of that before? <laughs> to uh, merge one prophet and one Q and become super more Q. powerful. Yeah, super Q. I don't know. It. I guess it just took a smart Vulcan. Right. Clever, clever Vulcan. Anyway, so what, what did you think of the the solution? Ah, <sighs> uh, it was okay. I was really hoping for a better solution than that. Right. Yo, there they go. They know it's a no-win situation. But Kirk says, we're going anyway. So it's like, I mean, supposedly Spock came up with this idea on the fly. I thought it was interesting how they had a lot of faith (laughs) that they're going to come up with something at the last minute. Because there was (laughs) like, all indication was, you're going to get creamed when you go, go charging in there with the lack of power. Now, quite frankly, I thought it was like, I mean, they had Q with them. It was like, okay, you got Q with you. That's okay. Let's go. The idea that Q was like semi-powerless in the wormhole, and I said this before, but I just think it was kind of yeah, BS. Right. What do you think? No, I, I thought the same thing. When Ducat shot Cisco, at first it was incredibly... Third guy killed. Yeah, and it was incredibly anticlimactic. Just beam over, shoot him. And I'm thinking, okay... They must have had a plan. Yeah. And I'm thinking, okay, well, that wasn't really Cisco. Maybe that was Q, and he'd he'd made himself look like Cisco, and right. and Cisco now is the one standing there that looks like Q. You know, I was expecting some sort of ruse like that, and then, nope, that was really him, and and they had no plan at all. <laughs> and now it's just musical chairs. Yeah. As far as who, who's going to control the the entity? Right. Yeah, I, I thought it was weird. Yeah, I would have been a little bit more impressed if there was some kind of, any kind of plan going in, but there apparently wasn't. But as far as giving Q superpowers, I I like that idea, and and, (laughs) I mean, it it works. I mean, it works. I just wish it was their idea before, you know, it wasn't just a, oh, well, we don't have anything else to do. We have no other options. Well, and you know, you're of the mind that Q ultimately is doing the right thing. And I'm not as much in that camp, personally. But uh, <laughs> and now he supposedly has more power than the other Q. So right. you know, I can see him, you know, maybe being a little mischievous with that ultimate. He had a, a ultimate omniscient power before. Now he's got even more, which is amazing. But whatever. Right. I, yeah, I just uh, wish that it would have, you know shown some of the other Qs. I mean, is he also the last Q in this battle, too? No. No. And where's his wife? Where's Lady Q? (laughs) Or Trelane. Or his son, Little Q. (laughs) Uh, Is that that like small Q? Yes, but it's it's a real thing. You know, with the little Q, the the little bottom of it below the line? Yes, I know what you're talking about. (laughs) And that's why their son is called Little Q. (laughs) And, and when they call his name, it's a little little letter Q. Yes. <laughs> okay, okay. I got that. Now, uh, John Delancey wrote a book. I forgot what it's called. It's really good, though. But it's based on, you know, obviously, from Q's point of view through the whole thing. It's it's actually right. really funny. Uh, definitely worth a read. Uh, what and is that one the called? One, that's where you're introduced to Lady Q and Little Q? No, Lady Q is actually from Voyager, but, but oh. Little Q is from, from that book. Oh, okay. I don't, I don't remember Lady Q. Ah, well. 
I'll have to go back and rewatch my Voyager. Right. You know, they have the big Q Civil War there in, in Voyager. Oh. Okay. Don't recall it. So I thought it was very fun to see Picard and Q together at the end. I thought that was pretty good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I liked it. Overall, I, I liked the issue. I love the artwork, the, the splashiness of the wormhole and the paw wraiths, and, and it, it looked fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, artwork quite good. Characters all good. I <laughs> When Jakat basically is violently dissolved... By Q with just a little finger thing. It's like, okay, say goodbye. Bing. I thought that was great. And it just touches him there on the spoon. Boop. Ah! And he just dissolves. <laughs> well, he does it. That's right. So he, he touches. Actually, his finger goes into the spoon. That's yep. interesting. <laughs> and then he falls away. And then just a little wisp of super Q juice. And uh, bye bye, Ducat. Cool. Yep. I thought the end seemed to come really fast. Right. It was like, they come in, they're in big trouble, a few panels go by, and Q cleans up the situation. So I thought that was kind of fast. Right. And then he just says, I'm going to go remodel the, the universe the way I want it to be done, yeah. the way I want it, and I'm sending you back to your time. And then the next panel, they're back in their time, and nobody else knows what's going on or what happened. So yeah, it was you- abrupt. Yeah, Q could have had the power to go back and just even reshape all the Nero garbage, too, if he wanted to. But obviously he didn't go that far. Right. He just put people back into their right places. But now, of course, it's set things up, hasn't it? The fact that Q plucked the Enterprise out of their timeline and put them into the future, that act in itself was at least partially responsible for what ultimately happened to the Federation. I mean, that's right. definitely what they seem to be setting up. Yep. So now, with the boys in, in gold and blue, back where they should be, and they allude to this at the end of the issue, maybe they can do something to save the Federation. Right. Yeah, I was really thinking that the no-win scenario really was in Kirk's time, and that he was being shown the future to kind of get an idea of what his choices could could bring to right. or what what could cause right. and um that doesn't seem to be the case i don't no, i don't that's not the i case. don't see they're going to revisit that um here in the normal timeline so i will admit i was surprised about the uh the q war the the multi-dimensional the q, yeah war sure that the q were even involved in the power wraiths yeah that's uh that was a surprise but I would like some sort of callback to it later. Right. Which I think is what you were alluding to, right? Uh, well, yeah. I mean, my point is that ultimately, you know, Kirk and company being back in the universe doing their good deeds is going to make it so that Earth does not fall to the Klingons. Right. And a lot of the things that transpired that led to this uh, nasty future that we've just been exposed to for the last six issues. Right, but we still that was don't. My point. But aside from the Enterprise going into the future, we don't know what what could have caused such radically different future. Well, not exactly. But one thing was the Klingons were able to, you know, fight the Federation and take over Earth. Right. So that's a pretty. Let, let's just look at that bit. 
I mean, you know that's exactly, <laughs> you know, what our heroes would be fighting against. But you really think the one ship is going to be able to, oh, to change that future? Oh, come on. I mean, how many times did the Shat and company do exactly that? <laughs> one ship in I like the right think... place at the right time makes all the difference. True. But I still like to think that maybe any other ship in the same situation would have been able to do just as good. I have that high confidence about well, the quality not. crew that the Starfleet apparently not pumping out because they weren't there to do it, and the Klingons took everything all over. I, I, I am, I am convinced that's what they're saying. Uh, I think so too. I just think that it's not quite accurate. I don't, I don't see how. That <laughs> Something else you, must. Are, have are you happened. trying to inject reality into these proceedings? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Should I not? Come on, it's a space opera. What do you want? <laughs> Which I, I thoroughly love, but anyway. Anyways, hopefully we'll be treated to continue to see the continuing adventures in both movies and the comics to see exactly how Kirk and the gang are able to thwart the Klingon menace. Right. And now that the Q cat has out, is out of the bag, I would like to see Q back for in the Kirk timeline. In the movie? No, just in these comics. I don't oh, really need to see him oh, in the movie. I just I I'm just want to sure, see him come back. I'm sure we'll be seeing Q again. <laughs> There's no two. They have shoehorned Q in these. I think it's great. I, I think we will see more of Q. And then send him back to the Enterprise era. Yeah. <laughs> So you want them to start up a new IDW to start up a new Star Trek series, which is back in, in no, the I just Archer wanna, time frame. I, I mean, well, I like a one-off. That, yes. You like a one-off? Well, I would just love even if they did Q, you know, somehow causing them to to meet up or something. I would take anything. <laughs> you just want to see Archer and Company again. <laughs> I was so excited about that flesh and stone story because I knew Dr. Flux was going to be in it. Right. And I was like, oh, they're going to have show us some NX-01 love, but uh, but he, no. was, he was the only no. cameo. So you have seen the preview for that new fan-made movie, Archer Timeframe? Oh, no, I haven't. Oh. Oh, you... I thought I texted you about it, but maybe I didn't. Yeah, you definitely should be taking a look for that. So it looks really cool. I don't know that they actually have Archer in it, but obviously played by somebody else. The special effects look pretty good, and it completely takes place in the Archer time frame. Oh, or maybe cool. a little past Archer. I'm not quite sure. Right, like during the beginning of the Federation? I'm down with that. I'll yeah. have to look it up. Yeah, look that up. I don't think it's out yet, but they've got the uh, trailer for it. Cool. And it looks it looks good. And I think it's a different starship. I don't think it's the Enterprise. But it's the same NX-01 model. Design. Cool. Right. Cool. Yeah. All right. Thank you. I'll look that up. You're welcome. Look that up. Okay. So uh, that's, that's all I have to say about this one. Same here. Let's, let's find out uh, what new adventures we're going to get into. Exactly. What else is going on with our crew, not that they're back in their own timeline? Okay, issue number 41. It's titled Behemoth, part one of two. Published date, January 2015. Writer Mike Johnson, story consultant, Roberto Orsi. 
Art by Kat Staggs. Colors, Wes Hartman. Letterer, Neil Yataki. Editor, Sarah Gatos. The main cover is full of action. Kirk is firing two phasers while moving horizontally across the page with not one hair out of place. Uhura, Sulu, and Spock are also firing phasers in different directions. McCoy is speaking on the communicator with dire intent. Scotty has his phaser ready to come to bear on the threat. Chekhov is crouching, ready to pounce on an unseen threat. The second cover is a photo cover of the lovely Carol Marcus, in uh, uniform this time. <laughs> As opposed to other ways she sometimes shows up, which is also nice. In a massive observation lounge on the Enterprise, Chekhov is stargazing. He meets a lovely fellow Russian named Irina. He is almost dumbfounded by her beauty and her genuine interest in speaking to him. She says she remembers meeting Chekhov briefly at the Academy. He does not recall, but he seems to wish he had. Chekhov is called to the bridge. They make it pretty plain to each other that they would be open to speaking again. Meanwhile, Kirk is speaking with Carol Marcus, his new weapons expert, and part-time xenobiologist. They are getting to know each other better when Kirk is called to the bridge by Spock. They make it pretty plain to each other that they would be open to speaking again. Kirk arrives on the bridge. Spock briefs him on the repeating signal that led them to an alien ship. The design is most unusual, somewhat reminiscent of a manta ray, very dark blue in color, with the thickest point in the center that trails off to edges at the outside perimeter. At the very top is a large opening that debris is escaping from. Kirk agrees it's an alien craft, and it's damaged. Spock conjectures the signal was an SOS. Kirk asks status of attempts to communicate with it. Uhura reports no response to their hails. However, she has made some success in translating what appears to be words in the language. Chekhov reports sensors cannot penetrate the hull. They cannot tell if anyone is alive in there. Science Officer 0718 offers to provide audio of the translation in progress. Uhura takes him up on that. He begins to make unfamiliar sounds. Kirk says it sounds like music. English words begin to come out among the music. Run. War. Be. Behem. Off. Kirk says, Behemoth? Is that the ship's name? It certainly is big enough. Save. Away. Run. Spock offers that it does not sound like a call for help. Why would the sender warn people away if they wanted aid? Save. Sun. War. Ing. Ahura says this does not sound like an automated signal. It sounds like someone is actually speaking. Behemoth. Kirk says if the sensors won't tell us who is in there, then we'll have to beam over. Mr. Spock, you have the con. Ahura is with Kirk. Spock counsels caution and says, with more analysis from the ship, they could better define the meaning of the signal so far. Kirk says, that will take time, and the people over there may not have it. Despite their warnings, the people over there could really use our help. The five-person landing party includes Carol Marcus, who says she was not expecting to put her xenobiology expertise to work quite so quickly. Transport complete. 
Kirk says they will maintain open comms. Spock acknowledges. Kirk tells security officer Zara to keep her phaser holstered, but not too holstered. Marcus reports the air is not breathable, so they keep their helmets and their environment suits on. McCoy thanks Kirk for asking him along to this wonderfully dark and scary alien environment. Kirk says the crew may need the healer's help, and he's the best. They follow what could be life signs until they come upon the master of the ship. A single insectoid biped with four arms. The alien's right leg appears to be damaged, perhaps broken. The alien speaks, but without translation technology, it is unintelligible. McCoy looks over him and says he thinks he can help with the alien's injuries. Ahura patches her translation device into their comms, and they start to hear English words. Not. Safe. You. Must go. McCoy says he has never left a patient to bleed out, and he's not going to start now. Kirk introduces themselves to the alien, and says they are there to help if they can. The alien introduces itself and says where he is from, but the translation cannot handle the name of him or his planet. Kirk asks what happened to him and his ship. The alien says he will show him using memory share. Once activated, the alien's tech shows all around them a vision of the alien's planet, a thriving world that was decimated when the Star Eater entered their star system and killed his world by eating their system's star. Later, after his world was killed, the alien pilot before them returned and found his family, his people, his world destroyed. He lost everything. He has hunted it for centuries and has finally found it. It was too powerful, though. It damaged his ship and him. The alien tells Kirk to flee now before it comes. Spock cuts in, advising Kirk to return to the ship immediately. Spock says they have encountered a creature that did not show up on their scans. The alien says he senses it. Behemoth is here. Cut to exterior shot. The Enterprise and the larger alien vessel are dwarfed by what appears to be an organic being 60 times the size of the Enterprise. Behemoth, indeed. Scotty cuts in, saying the plasma from the warp core has been sucked out of it, like water down a drain. Kirk asks, sucked where? Scotty says if he had to say, straight down the mouth of that beastie out there. If they don't find a way to stop it, their five-year mission will be over in minutes. To be continued. So you had a very interesting thought on what this story's about. Yes. Would you like to share that? It struck me about halfway through. I think it's a reworking of the Doomsday Machine, the original Taz episode that introduced Captain Decker and, of course, you know, the Doomsday Machine. But in that case, it was uh, another starship that was badly damaged by this automated weapon of mass destruction. And then uh, Kirk and the Enterprise come on the scene and, you know, find Decker, find out about the, the Doomsday Machine, and then it starts attacking the Enterprise. So that's what this seems like to me, only with an alien rather than Decker. Right. Yeah, no, that, that, that's an interesting thought. And the, that was a Sun Eater too, right? Or Planet Eater. Planet Eater. Yeah, it would break up planets and consume it for fuel. So not a Sun but planets, which is pretty, which is pretty big. 
So right. now they've they've upped the ante in the rehash. Right. I like the story so far. And instead of looking like a long tube, it looks like a giant glowing organic whale. Yeah, or like an amoeba or something. I, well, maybe not quite an amoeba, but it looks very organic. Right, but it has like like almost a whale type tail. Well, I mean, but it still looks kind of like it's clear through, see through. Right. Yeah. So maybe somewhere between a whale and uh, an amoeba. And, and an amoeba. Right? Oh, it could it could be the the giant amoeba story. I don't even remember which episode that was. Uh, that was terrible. I hated that one. Yeah, that was the uh, what immunity syndrome. That was the name of that one. Yeah, horrible. horrible. Remind me, remind me the <laughs> what was the story on that one? God, I hate that. So the Enterprise comes upon this giant space amoeba, right? That's like destroying worlds or whatever. And then you know the Enterprise has to has to they basically deal with it using antibodies. God, I hate Kirk at times. I think this was one where Shatner... Originally, it was Spock that came up with the idea of using antimatter. You know, kind of like as antibodies to kill to kill that, the, the giant amoeba. That's the way Kirk was saying it. Is that how he says it? <laughs> yeah, he, he, hit, he hit Spock on the face. You know, oh, he's got a great idea. And he's like, like clapping Spock on the face. And, and like Nimoy's like, oh, I don't know what you're talking about. And then he goes, antibodies... We'll shoot antimatter into it. It's like, okay, nah, whatever. Anyway, <laughs> I think I think I had heard that this was one where where Shatner thought that maybe the captain should figure out things once in a while. Uh, and it, I think it was originally written that Spock figured it out. What the, anyway, the main point is it's a horrible episode, <laughs> and it has a huge space amoeba. Yeah, I remember the space amoeba. That's that's about all I remember of it. Yeah. And it's called Immunity Syndrome because basically it's the Enterprise immunizing the Alpha Quadrant from this invading biological thing. Blah, blah, blah. So this could be a reworking of that because this thing does look like a giant amoeba. You, okay. you said it yourself. That's, poss- that's possible, but I don't think so. We'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll see which rehash this turns out to be, my friend. But I'm feeling pretty good about the Doomsday reboot. And right. actually, parts of this thing kind of look like a squid, too. Right. Because there's kind of like little like tentacle kind of sort of wispy, you know, things coming out of it. Right. Like the cilia of an amoeba. Uh, yep. Perhaps. I'm, I'm hearing you. Amoeba. Perhaps. Every, everything you or, say. Or the tentacles of a squid. Yes. Mm-hmm. Right. The main thing is it's huge and it's, you know, it looks organic and... It eats stars, that's all. Right. Like, oh my gosh. That's kind of a hot... That, talk about hot food. Spicy food. <laughs> anyway, the thing's huge. Absolutely huge compared to the uh, the Enterprise and the alien ship. Right. And, and what this story was kind of reminding me of when I was reading it was um, when they walk up to the, the pilot. Yeah. It really reminded me of Alien. So when they walk up to the space jockey oh, gotcha. on the, the the derelict ship, right? I mean, size wise, it kind of seemed like that. There's these guys in space suits, and they're walking up next to this other pilot, mm-hmm. and he's ginormous and right, insecty looking, right? So th- that was the vibe I was getting. Cool, cool. 
and he's kind of and he's telling them to go away which you know you come to find out that that's what the derelict was was an SOS don't don't come you know yeah, it, it wasn't was, it was, yeah it wasn't SOS it was a warning boy right basically so th- then I was like oh, this guy's it's just like that they're coming oh. they're coming to think they're uh-huh. helping and then come to find out here comes a bunch of aliens that's what I was expecting oh here comes a- face huggers <laughs> you know, he's like get away get away get away but instead I got a giant squid whale right which is a doomsday machine <laughs> right. <laughs> Maybe not. We'll find out. So I think it's interesting how they've got another alien life form that's insectoid. Because we got a lot of insectoids. Remember that uh, some of the earlier issues where we first start seeing the Klingons and the Klingon, the run up to the, the Klingon conflict? That oh, was right, another right, insectoid right. race on a planet. So it's great in a comic book because you can do anything you want. You don't necessarily have to have aliens look like people, you know, with two legs and everything. Sure. But they do seem to be doing a lot of insectoid intelligent races. Because that looks cool. Well, it looks cool, but something I found that they did here is they definitely were trying to get the reader to be compassionate about this alien and his people that have been wiped out. That's definitely a part of the story. So they want you to feel for this alien and his people that have been wiped out. And then, you know, here comes the uh, the Star Trek heroes to try to help them and stuff. And it's like, oh, boy, look out. We're really uh, screwed now, you know. So the thing that disabled his ship is back. So uh, the thing is... I felt sorry for the alien and and his and his his people. I mean, some of the drawings showed like little cocoons, right? You know, or whatever. You know, maybe uh, you know, eggs larvae or, or, or something. larvae. That's that's what yeah. I'm trying to get at. Yeah. So the the immature life forms before it turns into adults. Whatever. So I was digging all that, but if they made this into a movie. You know, if this was one of the future movies, which I can completely see this being, I think this would be kind of like a really good five-year mission story to translate into a movie, quite frankly. I don't think they'd go with the alien life form. I I don't think they'd go with the insectoid life forms. I think they'd they'd go with uh, an alien life form that's a little easier for Joe Sixpack to to relate to. Right. Especially this guy. I mean, I I couldn't even understand what his face really was because it seems like it's... A helmet of some sort with a bunch of eyeballs kind right. of all the way around it, 360 degrees, except right. for this little area in the front that's all black, which has sometimes a glowing thing behind it and sometimes yeah. not. So I was really kind of trying to figure out, were those the eyes around it or was that just like a – or is the eyes the little glowing thing inside of the blackness? Right. It was really hard to figure out what his anatomy was. Yeah. Yeah, and, yeah, and it is, like it, it's glowing in multiple parts of his body, like in the trunk, you right. know, like between the hips and the and the stomach, where the stomach would be. It, it like a green glowy kind of thing, and like his forearms are kind of the green glowy stuff that looks, you know, without uh, the dark blue uh, exoskeleton. exoskeleton. There you go, exoskeleton, right. right? Yeah, it's it's a it's a unique design. It's an interesting design. Not just insectoid, but it's got extra stuff going on. Right. Yeah, now as far as his story about the planet dying and stuff like that, it really reminded me of the Martian Manhunter storyline from DC Comics, mm-hmm. whereas he 
is the last of his kind. He he, right. he, he had a family on Mars. They're all dead now, and, and the yeah. planet is completely lifeless. And uh, when he's telling the story, I was like, man, this is a lot like uh, like that, you know. Even though he does look alien, you still feel you're still able to feel compassionate towards a character that doesn't emote the same way we do. But just hearing, you know, his anguish or whatever, you you sure. really you really buy into it. Right. So, just quickly, because we don't want to go too far down the path. Why did everybody die on Mars? Um, Why is he the last of his kind? The war with the white Martians. He's a green Martian. Oh, a war with the White Martians. Okay. Yeah, of course. How do you not okay. know this stuff? And the White Martians are more like humans then. No, they're more like amoebas. <laughs> <laughs> You're kidding. No, they're 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 these monstrous, like almost something from like uh, the thing. You oh, know, like, like John okay. Carpenter's the thing. Sure, sure, yeah, yeah. Huh. Ah, okay, thanks. Just wondered. <laughs> Look it up. It's it's interesting. Okay. So do you notice how Chris Pine Kirk's hair is a lot closer to Shat's hair in this issue? I did not notice. Yes. Yes. It's a lot more like the Shat's, you know, comb over. You know, like in the front, it kind of combs over a bit. Yeah, that's not how he was wearing it in Into Darkness? No. And that's not how he was wearing it in the previous issue either. Uh, So in the... Throwing it out a bit. Well, no, okay, hold on. Mm, yeah, it's not quite the same way. But definitely in the movie, it wasn't like that. So his hair is a lot closer to how the Shat wore it in this issue. And, right. and now that I look back, uh, I guess a little bit more... It, it's a little bit more like it in the previous issue. But if you take a look at the original movies, his hair is not quite the same as uh, as Shat's. But in this issue, definitely so. And personally, I like the hair the way Chris Pine has it in the movies. You know. You don't have to have shat here. Right. Go on your own path, fine. Anyway. (laughs) No, I did not notice that. Yeah. So Chekhov has a love interest? Yeah, I'm curious to see where that goes. Yeah. Not the biggest thing I'm interested in, but eh, it's nice the kid's got a little girlfriend. That's good. Maybe. And then, uh, then I thought it was odd that, you know, we don't even know how many... How long have they been out already? And and Kirk is just now talking to uh, Marcus. Marcus about not only being there, but what what she wants to do. I mean, we know that a lot of time passed in between the Enterprise being almost completely destroyed and the leaving on the first five year mission. Yep. They never had a chance to talk during all that time, plus all these events that have happened over the last you know dozen or right. so issues. Yeah, he's just now finding out she minored in xenobiology. Okay. Yeah, it, it, I find it hard to believe it took him that long to start hitting on her again. <laughs> Especially with that eyeful in the shuttle. <laughs> right. Right. So. Which I attempted to allude to in the opening. But, oh yeah, you alluded to it. All right. Did Did, did you get that? I wasn't too subtle. <laughs> Okay. But I did, I did like that. I, I do like that maybe they can bring in the romance thing that uh, they had in the Prime universe. That mm-hmm. would be, I would like that. Make it so. Yeah. Yep. Cute. That's nice. So we have a little bit of personal interactions going on in the middle of all the action and adventure. Right. So good. Yep. The part I could do without is uh, 
the data want to be in zero seven one eight? Oh, what about him? I don't like him. I he's okay, but yeah, it's like eh. he's data light, very light. But whatever, some, he, whatever he, you a, want to do, he'll do it. <laughs> well, he is a little bit. He's not quite data, but he's kind of he's kind of like data. But being the interface to the ship's computer, he's he's a little different. He's right. like he's like Zen a little bit, and Slave a little bit, which are both computers in uh, Blake Seven. Um, but yeah, yeah. Mm. Obviously, a lot more. It's, more to interact with than the Majel Barrett voice all the time in Taz, right. in the traditional one. I wonder if that's why they brought him on, because they didn't want to recast the voice for the End of Darkness movie. I hadn't thought about that. Uh, oh, well, since she's... She was still alive when the 2009 movie came out? Yeah. Okay. Well... Um, but they didn't actually have a ship's computer talking to them, right? In, in the 2009? Yeah, yeah it, 2000. it talked at some point. Did it? Mm-hmm. Okay, well, obviously they recast the voice then. That wasn't hers, was it? Was in it 2009, hers? it was her. Oh! <laughs> How interesting. But I can't remember if they ever had anything talking in 2011, whenever that one came, last one came out. Oh. When uh, did the last one come out? Uh, 20, 2012? S- 2013? 2013. It's been that long? Wow. 2013. Must have been 2013. Yeah, 13. I think. Yeah, we know what we're talking about. Not really. We should, <laughs> but we don't. Yeah, okay. in the darkness. So, I, can't, I can't recall the, the computer ever talking, but it, it had to have when, when he was in the uh, chamber and it was about to blow up. And wasn't there a countdown? So. Yeah, there was the automated countdown, but that was not him. Yeah, that no, was not 0718. But it wasn't her either, though, was it? No. Was it a female voice? Yeah, I think so. Now I'm going to have to rewatch it. Dang it. Dang it. You get on that. There's worse anyway. things to have to rewatch. So when I was reading the issue between Chekhov and Kirk, I was getting a strong Love Boat vibe. <laughs> Just to mention that. All right. But then we were able to move on quickly after that. Well, I was kind of hoping for a more, uh, you know, I wouldn't have minded a one-off Valentine-type story. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, this came out around beginning of the year, so yeah. Valentine's. They could have done a – just further some – how Spock and Ahura's relationship standing, how, mm-hmm. how it's Kirk and Marcus, uh, Chekhov and this gal. I mean, I would have been okay with that. Yeah. We don't need a giant well, no adventure? every story. No adventure? Come on. We could have a smaller story. Okay, you so know, like like, the, like, like, of, like a background thing. Make it the background thing, the threat. Make that part of the storyline the background thing and have the romance come to the fore. fore. Yeah, or, or just further character development. Okay, there you go. Well, there are issues like those, that, too. Some of those like, great... Like Data's uh, Day. Exactly. Some of the yeah. great Next Generation episodes were because they spent all their budget making some big special effects or creating a new world in, in an earlier episode, so they... Do a ship ship only episode and and right. some of those are really good. Yeah, they are. Well, I'm All looking right. forward to how this uh, this plays out in the next issue. 
Yeah, yeah. So uh, we should get get to these more often. Don't let them back up like we have been. Yeah. Well, and now we've got so many different IDW one-offs. So we've got the Planet of the Apes one. Of course, we don't have all the issues for that yet, but we definitely are going to be doing City on the Edge of Forever, right? Next next week, yeah. Perfect. Looking forward to that. So, yeah, they're pumping out a lot of good stuff, IDW. So I, I agree. We, we don't want to let ourselves get too far behind and ongoing. Right. All right. Any other comments? Nada. I am done with this one. Same here. Cool. All right. Well, then, like I said, uh, next week we'll be back with City at the Edge of Forever, part one through three. Perfect. I really love that episode, as I have stated multiple times before. So very much looking forward to seeing the original script um, right. in the comic. Yep. All right. I'm, I'm looking forward to reading it. We'll be back next week. Yes. Thanks for joining us, everybody, on The Review. Thank you for listening to Star Trek Comic Book Review. All Star Trek stories and characters are copyrighted CBS Studios Incorporated. All music, stories, and characters discussed are for entertainment purposes only. You can email us at startcomicbookreview at gmail.com. Visit us at our website, www.stcomicbookreview.com. Subscribe to us via iTunes. Or friend us on Facebook at first name, stcomic, second name, book review. See you next time on Star Trek Comic Book Review.